Welcome to Podcasting Stories, insights and interviews from people just like you, using podcasts to grow their business and share their message. Podcasting Stories is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Dave Spray. Hi, this is David Spray, and welcome to another episode of Podcasting Stories. Today, we're talking with Paul Fariga of PR company WordWrite, based up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. In this episode, we learn more about the firm Paul founded 20 years ago, his book, Finding Your Capital S Story, the business magazine he launched, and the podcast he created to accompany it. For all of his business ventures, Paul's entire focus is to help companies better craft and communicate their story. So we talked about his own podcast experience and his desire to start a second podcast. If you've ever considered having your own podcast, this episode has many great ideas on ways to craft the story of your podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be with you. Well, the pleasure is all mine. So well, let's get right into things. There's a number of things I want to cover. I want to talk about your podcast. I want to talk about your book. I want to talk oh, about great. your company. So let's start with your company, uh, WordWrite. Now, were you the founder of that business? Yes, I am. Guilty, Your Honor, as charged. <laughs> well, I think it's been nearly 20 years ago since you started that. What prompted you to start that business? And by the way, I love your title, President and Chief Storyteller. Well, thank you, Dave. I, I appreciate that. Uh, from one storyteller to another there, right? Uh, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so there's a story behind why the company was founded. Are you surprised? I am I, not. Please tell me all about it. You got it. I'd been in journalism for a number of years, and then I'd worked at Ketchum Public Relations, which is the fifth largest PR firm in the world. And in the PR business, there are three main kinds of players, the news media, the agency people, and corporate people, the PR people inside big companies. And I thought that was going to be my next career stop. And after I left Ketchum in the fifth round of layoffs in the middle of the dot-com explosion, which was, until COVID, one of the larger recession events we've had in the world, I thought to myself, that's what I want to do next. I want to go work for a big company. I started networking with people to go do that, and they told me that wasn't a good idea. Not a thing you want to tell somebody who at the time had a, uh, a lovely wife and, and two great kids and a mortgage. And, sure. Uh, <laughs> I started asking my friends, why are people saying this to me? And, and one of my wise friends, who later became a business coach uh, for me, said, well, did you ask these people why they're saying that? And I said, no, I didn't think of that. Go back and ask them. So I didn't. And they said, <laughs> you really shouldn't go work for a big company. You should start your own agency. And if you do, I'll hire you. Oh, wow. How about that? Huh? That's great to start a business with your first client lined up already. Yeah. And there were some, some stories along the way. Uh, the very first client for our company was BASF. And I had a former client and friend who was working there, and he was trying to hire me on the staff. And I, I didn't really think I wanted to do that. 
I, I think I wanted to be out on my own. So he called me one day and he said, I have good news and bad news. I said, okay, Tim, what, what is it? He said, well, what do you want first? I said, well, give me the bad news. He said, the bad news is I can't hire you. Oh, geez. Okay, Tim. Sorry to hear that. He said, but the good news is if you had an agency, I could hire you tomorrow. And <laughs> literally, Dave, I had the incorporation papers for my company on my desk and I was filling them out when he called. Wow. Yeah, it gets better. 15 minutes later, he called me back. I looked at the caller ID. It was BASF again. Oh, crap. There goes that gig. Pick up the phone. Hey, Paul, Tim again. There's a problem. Okay, Tim, what's the problem? He's like, unless you have a business checking account and I can direct deposit this huge check into your account every month, I can't hire you. I said, Tim, no problem. We'll get that taken care of. True story. Wow. So how long did it take to get the checking account set up? Within an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Desperation. That's the mother of invention, Dave. <laughs> for sure. For sure. So so tell me more about WordWrite. Like how, how do you describe your elevator statement? Yeah. So just a side note, I I don't like that term elevator statement. As a storyteller, okay. I believe we have what we call our our origin story or our reason for being. Nobody ever bought anything on an elevator except maybe if you were trapped on the elevator and some <laughs> tool that would get you out, right? And really, right. these people, when they think of elevator speeches and being trapped in an elevator, that's kind of what they put together. The reason that WordWrite exists is to connect the providers of complex services. So think architecture, engineering, financial services, law firms to C-suite decision makers and middle market companies. And the way we do that is by uncovering, developing, and sharing what we call those organizations' capital S story. Dave, the capital S story is the story above all others that answers these questions. Why somebody would buy from you, work for you, invest in you, or partner with you. That's what we do. Okay. And what does the capital S mean? Meaning like capitalizing the letter S? Yeah, quite literally. Big story. Mm -hmm. We tell stories to ourselves, to our employees, to our clients, our coworkers all day long, our families. But in terms of a business, this is the story above all others. All other stories that you might share in whatever way, seeing, hearing, experiencing, all should point back to that capital S story, which is why the name of my book is Finding Your Capital S Story. And the subtitle tells you what I believe about that story. The subtitle is Why Your Story Drives Your Brand. Okay. So is it the story storytelling aspect of your service that makes you different than just your run-of-the-mill PR firm? Yes. Our view of story and how we apply story, we've trademarked our own process of uncovering and developing the capitalist story. It's called story crafting. We've also trademarked a number of the processes that go along with that. There are tools that we use to help uncover this particular story. 
Dave, this story and our work is rooted more in sociology and psychology and biology than it is in marketing. Human okay. beings are wired for stories, our brains. And, and we start from that basis in the work of people like Carl Jung or Joseph Campbell. Yeah, I love Joseph Campbell's work, uh, The Hero's Journey. Exactly. Yeah, he's, uh, his, his work can be summed up in this way. Human beings tell the same stories over and over again, regardless of cultural or economic attainment, the society that they're in, et cetera, et cetera. And our work in our firm is to tap into that deep wellspring of those stories and align what our clients do with classic story archetypes so that they are better understood by the people who can write the checks and hire them. Okay. That, I think that helps uh, give a better idea. Yeah. Uh, why don't we drill in a bit further? Could you give us like a kind of a client success story, you know, whether you can name them or whether yeah, you just sure. anonymously right. tell the story? I have two client success stories in my book, so I'll use one of them. One of our current clients is a very fine accounting firm called McClintock & Associates. They happen to be based in Pittsburgh. It's a national firm. They are one of the top experts on accounting matters for for-profit post-secondary education. So everything from for-profit universities to art schools, et cetera, et cetera. And they came to us a few years ago wondering how could they better tell what they do. And we took them through the story crafting process. We developed an archetype for them. It's called the sage archetype. It's akin to what you might see in classical literature, uh, something like Merlin the Magician and the King Arthur and the Round Table, right? They are the font of knowledge. Now, how could they possibly be that they're an accounting firm? Well, in their particular area of expertise a few years ago, there was a huge conference. This is before COVID. Hundreds, thousands of people were going to be there. The main speaker was going to be a federal official in charge of a program regulating these kinds of institutions, these post-secondary institutions. He became ill at the last minute, and the U.S. government called our client and said to the managing partner of the firm, unfortunately, our guy is sick. You should do the speech. I mean, is there wow. a better acknowledgement of an organization as being an expert than that, right? Now, For they, sure. You know, our clients, they're accountants. They don't wander the face of the earth saying, hi, I'm from McClintock. I'm a sage. No, they, they don't do that. Huh? It doesn't work that way. So here's how, here's how it does work, Dave. When our clients are out in the world, they talk about their firm providing a higher grade of accounting. That is how right. we take this concept of the sage and allow them to talk about it with clients in a way that's relevant and that also provokes a conversation, right? So, so that the prospects say, well, what do you mean a higher grade of accounting? And they get to explain it. Okay. 
that is a that is a great story that the that the government official recognized yeah. their their sageness, if you will, yes. and had them do the do the talk. Okay, and can you talk just a bit about the process of how you helped them? Did you go through this your story crafting process? We did indeed. So story crafting typically has two phases, Dave. The first phase is thirty to forty-five days, and that's the process in which we do everything I just talked about. We strip it down to the why of the organization. We align it with a classic story archetype, and then we create what we call storylines. So a higher grade of accounting is an example of a storyline. Again, you want to connect with human beings at the level of the old brain where things such as fight or flight and stories drive activity. People may decide rationally, but they buy emotionally. And we're working to create that emotional connection by tapping into the entire tapestry of human history's storytelling paradigms. We do that in the first 30 to 45 days. At the end, we've got an archetype. We've adapted it so it fits our client. And then it's time to go out and share the story. That's phase two. We work together to determine the best ways to do that. From decades in this business, Dave, I can tell you most often epic marketing fails happen when you go directly to the end and you decide, oh, I need a brochure or I need to do a video or I need to spend a lot of money on fill-in-the-blank marketing exercise without bothering to figure out what your story is, who needs to see it or hear it or experience it, and what's the best way to reach them. That's what we do in mm. faith. Now that makes sense that you that you want to have the story identified first because otherwise if you just go straight to marketing materials you're you're kind of shortcutting the process, right? Dave, think of it this way. If you're going to go to California, are you just going to get in the car and drive? Probably not. Probably going to have a map. Right. <laughs> so that's another way of looking at what we do in that in that phase 1. We're developing a map but it's a map that's unique to you because it's your story. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that is helpful. So let's now turn to the book. So sure. what prompted you to write the book? This is a lot uh, to take in. It's a, it's a life's work. You know, I can tell just by our conversation today that I'm, I'm causing you to think a little bit. The book is a vehicle to distill a life's work in storytelling and make it understandable and relatable for people so that they can take a look at it and understand all the science that's behind it, the sociology, the biology, et cetera, et cetera. Storytelling, as I say in the book, isn't BS, it's biology. It's the title of one of the chapters in the book. And, and there's a great foundation for it. Far too often, I think, business leaders look at marketing, Dave, and they think, Oh, that's just foo-foo. That's just fluff. In order to do it well, that's not what it is at all. It's, sure. it's rooted in science, and it should be measurable. We often say to our clients, you shouldn't spend a single dollar on marketing unless you know what you're going to get for it. And the book really goes through all of that point by point. Okay. How do you how, – how is the book best served your company? As an asset, is it a 
is an educational piece, is a credibility credibility building asset. Was it a way for you to, in essence, write your memoirs while yeah. you, while you're still a young man? What? Um, well, well, thank you for that. It is not a memoir. It is it is an educational tool. It is a calling card. It, it, if you think about uh, a book, you think about it as a marketing tool, Dave, and m- many business leaders have, have written books uh, for sure. Uh, it's got the longest shelf life of about anything you could do uh, to promote your way of thinking. Mm. Yeah. That's the main reason I wrote it. I wanted to get out into the world in a long lasting way, all the thinking behind our process and our success with it. Okay. And what year did you write it? It came out, it was supposed to come out at the beginning of 2020, came out in November of 2020. It's available on Amazon, finding your capital S story. And uh, yeah, it's, we've got everything but the audiobook version up there now. I'm still in the process of recording that. You can get paperback okay. or you can get a hardcover. Okay. Well, that's great. And I'm glad to know it's on Amazon. And let me know when the, the audio uh, piece is done. I do like to read, but it seems like sometimes audio is a more convenient way for me to digest learning because it you can do it while you you can listen while you're doing other things. Yes, you can. You can multitask and consume an audiobook. You can't do that with many other forms of media. That's for sure. That is true. You know, podcasts perhaps. In fact, speaking of which, why don't we now move on to the podcast? Sure. But before we do, it sounds like that before the podcast came the creation of the Pittsburgh 100. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. So let's talk about the Pittsburgh 100. What prompted you to uh, found and, and publish it? And, and what is it exactly? Sure. The Pittsburgh 100 is part of a network of about 40 similar publications around the world, Dave. The traditional news media is pick your word, imploding, falling apart. I prefer to think that it's evolving. As a company that started in the PR business, one of the things that was of most value to our clients was sharing their stories with whatever audience they needed to reach. And we joined the network and started the Pittsburgh 100 because we realized, and this is true for many of our clients too, that we needed to become our own publisher in order to get great stories out into the world that were worthy of people's attention but weren't reaching them through traditional means. So the Pittsburgh 100 is in every other week, 48, excuse me, 24 times a year publication that reaches about 46,000 subscribers in the uh, Pittsburgh region. We have 100 word stories. That's where the name comes from. The founder of the 100 concept, a friend of mine named Chris Schroeder, who started with the Atlanta 100 and has since expanded it, as I described, he did focus groups with C-suite leaders and learned that they felt they weren't getting the information they needed, but they wanted it in small, bite-sized pieces. So the Pittsburgh 100, every other week, 24 times a year, 100-word stories or 100-second videos. That is really 
clever and astute by Chris to recognize that there was a, a hole in the market that, that he could fill. It, it really is. And, you know, this, there's a story behind that, too. He was commiserating with a friend of his at the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. And Chris is like me, a former journalist. And, you know, about the what was happening in the media. And Chris's friend said to him over drinks, well, you should start your own publication. And Chris thought about it. And the rest is history. That's awesome. It really is. And it, it does it does serve a need. Now there's not only, say, Atlanta or or Tampa, or Oklahoma, or there's the Engineering 100, the Travel 100. It's it's really grown to be quite a company. That is really interesting. I've never even heard of it until I met you. So that is, yeah, that is interesting. So from there, what what prompted you to launch the podcast? And what's the name of the podcast? The podcast is called the P100 Podcast, and our tagline is the audio companion to the Pittsburgh 100. As as much as people enjoy the 100-word stories, Dave, we did hear from a lot of folks and also from the people we either interviewed or it's largely our staff that that writes the 100. You know, geez, we really would have liked to spend more time with so-and-so they had a very fascinating story. And podcasts are perfect for that. Through COVID, we've been doing about a 25 to 35-minute podcast. It's primarily one interview with a person of interest. We just recorded episode 28 uh, today, and it's an interview with the head of the Pittsburgh Film Office about all of the movie and TV filming that's happening in the Pittsburgh region. Uh, right now, she told us, for instance, we've got seven active productions ongoing. Wow. Is this new to Pittsburgh or has Pittsburgh always been the Hollywood of the East? Well, that's a nice, nice name for it. Let's put it this way. Pittsburgh's one of the top 10 filming locations in the country for the industry. And Don Keyser, who runs the office, has, has been in charge of the office for 27 years. So not an overnight sensation. And I can, I can point you back to a number of films over the years that have been done here 10 years ago. Now the dark Knight rises. One of the uh, Batman films was done here a oh, number wow. of times as well. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's pretty cool. Yes. So you've got the podcast and you're, you're, you're going deeper into these 100 word stories in essence by interviewing folks. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Yes. And some, sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll have somebody in the podcast that wasn't in the uh, easing, but generally there's a relationship between the two. Okay. So how has, has having a podcast compared to your expectations has it been different about what you expected better worse it's been a lot of fun when you okay. have when you have your own podcast you, you you suddenly become an expert and in the case of our pittsburgh 100 podcast dave i feel like i can call up anybody in pittsburgh and ask them to be on the podcast Right. It's like having your own radio show. It is like having it is exactly like having your own radio show. Except you don't have a producer telling you to take it's time for a commercial break. Well, well, well that's right. And 
I also think that's a very important point. A lot of folks look at podcasts solely from the standpoint of monetizing them by having a sponsor or whatever. Mm-hmm. While we wouldn't be opposed to that, that's not the main reason we did it. The main reason we did it was to create the opportunity to extend our reach by creating another medium to talk with people about their interesting stories. And that you anticipated my next question, which are, what are some of the things you enjoy most about having a podcast? So one of them is extending the reach. And then uh, it also sounds like it's just been a lot of fun for you. What else do you enjoy? Do you enjoy about having a podcast? It's, it's conversational and you can take the time to explore issues that you really can't in many other forums. In half an hour, there's a lot of ground you can cover, and you don't feel rushed. You can have a little fun. Since the very beginning, one of my colleagues, Dan Stefano, has been a co-host with me. He has the title at our company, Brand Journalist. And, and like me, he's a former journalist. So, so we kind of came up interviewing Dave, and we enjoy that. We also have a lot of fun with the banter. It's a relaxed format that's, I have to say, in my experience, is unusual. The, the format in podcasts is truly unusual. It is, like you said a couple minutes ago, most like a, a relaxed talk radio show. Yeah, that has certainly been my experience. Do you intend to continue the podcast, or is there any reason you would cease the podcast? Yes, we definitely intend to continue it. And the only reason we might consider discontinuing it is if we stop publishing the 100. I don't think we're going to do that. So I don't think we're going to stop the podcast. In fact, we've talked about starting a second podcast that's focused more primarily on what we talked about at the beginning of our time today, which is our uh, storytelling and story crafting process. That's still in the works. So I guess you could say, not only do we continue to continue, intend to continue, but we might expand our little podcasting empire. I love it. You'd be doubling your empire, right? Exactly. From one to two. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you decide if continuing the podcast is worth the time and money? I mean, is it purely financial or are there intangibles in the equation? I mean, you've already answered the question that you continue it. Right. But Right. I, I think, Dave, it's, it's important for people listening to your podcast here. My research, and you know, as a former journalist, I like research. <laughs> I consider it essential. Most of the podcasts I see are not about the money per se. It's more important to build credibility, to educate people, as you said earlier. And to me, that's the really enjoyable aspect of it. Very, very few podcasts in my research are drawing enough downloads and engagement from the the purely financial standpoint to really be revenue generators. Yeah, I would agree. And, and I don't, I don't think that that's what we were looking to do. Sure. But there is a cost in terms of time and money though. And, oh, yes. uh, 
Yes. How do you how do you decide if that's if it's worth it? Is it is it a dollars and cents thing, or is it just more? Is it just a kind of an intangible thing that you just trust that it's it's worth having? That's a good question, Dave. It's intangible. It is related to some some financial measures. In our case specifically, since we're already doing the Pittsburgh 100 easing, we've already got some financial investment in terms of people's time and resources. And it's not that difficult for us to add the podcast to what we're already doing and, and align them, right? I, I think for folks who might be considering a podcast, you have to think about the time and effort that's involved. Well, one of the things we've talked about with our clients, I mean, because we're in the business, we have the team on staff that can produce our podcast, but we really, and most people don't really realize, I think, and, and they're, they get stuck in terms of podcasting because they don't have the internal resources to make it a consistent endeavor. It, it becomes, as you're suggesting with your question, a tug of war for them in terms of the time and the commitment to get it done on a regular basis and get it done well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's what we find as well. What advice would you give to someone who's considering starting a podcast? You have to have a strong strategy, a reason for being. Another one of the things I learned in my research it's amazing how few podcasts get as far as even the seventh episode. It's just stunning statistics that are out there. And I attribute that in large measure to two things. One, not having a strong, compelling strategy that can carry the podcast beyond just a few episodes. And then two, and I think this is really important and something you know way more about than I do, Dave, is they don't have the internal resources to uh, produce the podcast, get it out mm-hmm. there and get it seen by the right people, heard by the right, right people. Right. Yeah, that stat of how few episodes break the seven or, or how few podcasts break the seven episode barrier is really amazing. Yeah. In fact, we tell our clients if they just release one episode a month for 10 months, they'll be, and they do it at least every 90 days, that they'll be in the top 25% of all podcasts worldwide because three quarters of them have not broken the 10 episode barrier and have published a new episode in the last 90 days. It's amazing. When you think about it, you look at what's happening among celebrities and people who are well-known in the world. I mean, look, Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen have a podcast. Why are right. they, of all the things they could do, they, they've got a podcast. Michelle Obama has a podcast. Brene Brown has a, a podcast. There's value in podcasts is my point. For the rest of us, meaning people who aren't former presidents or uh, authors of you know multiple million-selling books, podcasting is... I believe something that is very much worth considering if you have a good strategy and if you can be, as you just said, consistent in producing it. Mm-hmm. 
No, I, I would agree. What do you wish you knew when you started the podcast? Like, what do you wish you knew about podcasting when you started it? I, I wish I had focused more on what I described today as the benefits rather than the pop culture hype. You know, look, Pr- Princess Harry and, and, and Megan have, have a podcasting company. Somebody paid them $50 million or some crazy amount of money to start that company. That's not going to happen for the rest of us. <laughs> if you think that you should start a podcast because you want to make, you know, even necessarily a million dollars off the podcast, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go down that route. And I, I probably spent a little bit too much time, even in our much more narrow well-defined marketplace considering that rather than just thinking about what I consider to be the really great benefits of having a podcast, which is to produce credibility, educate folks, and to give you some standing in your industry as a thought leader. Mm-hmm. No, I, I totally agree. The, the credibility and the educational aspect of it are, are really powerful. You know, yeah, another interesting thing is you can, it's funny the people who I would have had trouble getting a 15 minute meeting with who are happy to come on my podcast for an hour. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Yeah, it, it is interesting, isn't it? And I think it comes back to what you said earlier. Even though most of us don't really listen to talk radio anymore, I know some people do. And if you do, I think that's great. Uh, a lot of us, you know, might listen to it on Sirius XM mm-hmm. radio or something like that, or podcasts. Right. It's, it's a great medium for this sort of thing. And yeah, know, I, I don't have to worry about AM radio reception with my podcast. <laughs> I can download it onto my phone and, you know, listen to it while I'm biking or jogging or working out or, or whatever, right? No, that's great. In fact, I tell our new clients – when they're about to launch and I, cause they're always worried about, you know, that they, they won't be able to find any guests that nobody will be interested. And I tell them, I said, you wouldn't believe it. Most of your guests have never been on a podcast and they will be flattered. And it's as if their brain doesn't really have a way to process being on a podcast because they've never been on a podcast. Exactly. So it's almost like in their brain, it'd be like if I said, Hey, Paul, I don't know if you know, but I'm guest hosting The Tonight Show next week. Would you like to pop by Tuesday for a 15-minute segment? It's kind of, it's kind of, it seems to go in the same part of their brain that they're like, wow, really? Me on The Tonight Show? Me on your podcast? Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty amusing. It is. It is. And uh, it speaks to why folks who are, are listening should, if they have not already, considered a podcast, why they should seriously consider one. Sure. Yeah, I would, I would completely agree. So I have two more questions before we wrap up. The first question is, so the last one's kind of a curveball. So we'll save that one till the end. Okay. We'll get to the one before that. So that question is, is there anything that I did not ask you that you wish I had, or is there anything that we should have talked about to make our conversation complete that I did not bring up. 
Well, I guess really the the, the only thing uh, that I can think of, Dave, really is why is it that there's a podcast about podcasts, I guess. Um, I, I think that's an intriguing discussion. And, and we could have talked a little bit more about that. And I don't know if you want to. <laughs> sure. No, we can't. You're talking about my podcast. Yeah. Podcasting story. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, did you ever watch Seinfeld? Yes, more times than I probably should have. And there's okay, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I unfortunately can probably quote just about every line from every character from every episode. So wasted youth, I would say. But do you yes. remember the episode where Kramer had the coffee table book? that yes. turned into a coffee table. Remember he was on Regis and Kathy Lee showing it. And yeah. remember he brought the idea to Elaine when she was at pendant publishing and she thought it was the stupidest idea ever. But then the, uh, whoever, the guy that was, that was in charge, you know, he loved the idea of course. So, so I, it's a little bit like that. So why is there a podcast about podcasting? Well, I found that, from an educational perspective that I came across a lot of people who were interested in having a podcast. You know, so it's funny, you know, there's 377,000 active podcasts in the world. Amazing. Yet there's the latest stats. I think there's like 50 million active podcast listeners in the U S alone. Wow. And so like, like that's a big disconnect. And so so a significant number of those listeners, I believe, have said to themselves, well, hey, you know, this doesn't seem so hard. I think I could do this or, or, you know, I've got stories as good as this guy's. So like, maybe I should have a podcast, but then I feel like they get stuck because it can be so overwhelming, you know, just the technology alone, you know, you oh, can yeah. decide between a hundred different microphones. And so, and and my thesis was that there were a lot of people interested in perhaps having a podcast. They didn't really know where to start. They didn't want to talk to like a salesperson, you know, trying to convince them to have a podcast and that they kind of wanted the ability to kind of mull this over. And so, so that was the, the thinking that it was an educational uh, tool. And then the other aspect of it, that's kind of evolved over time. So we are, we're in a weekly release schedule and I usually have two to three guests a month who are considering starting a podcast. And basically we have like a real time, you know, live consulting session with them. And then we do one to two episodes a month with experienced podcasters such as yourself. Right. Well, what's interesting is that for about every three podcasts, guests who are considering a podcast, the experience is so compelling to them that that practically by the end of the interview, they're ready to move forward and they want us to help them launch a podcast. So the other aspect of the podcast, it also allows for people considering hiring us, it gives them an opportunity to kind of try it before you buy it. Because our clients use the exact same platform that we do. So, in fact, our tagline is, we're having a podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. So, that's kind of the other piece. So, it's educational and a opportunity to, to 
to experience it, you know, being on a podcast. I think it's great, Dave. It really is. And, you know, I didn't say this directly, but certainly I will now. You know, folks listening, if they haven't started a podcast, I think working with an organization like yours is, it's it's critical. In working with our clients, there have been numerous times when uh, we've uh, recommended uh, for the same reasons we've talked about today during this episode, that they ought to consider a podcast. There's not really, in my mind, very many organizations like yours that do this work. And it's a critical need because as the statistics you cited describe, there are people out there who are interested in podcasts as a medium of getting information so that they can make better decisions, whether it's for their business or their personal life or or whatever. And it's not that hard, <laughs> like your tagline, but it is great if you have somebody who can help you so you don't fall into that big you know, rabbit hole of all those podcasts that, that never have many episodes and just kind of disappear, right? Right. Right. Yeah, that's the idea. In fact, we tell our guests, our, our clients who think that they want to do more frequently than once a month, is I always tell them, start with once a month. You can always increase your frequency, but yes. it looks bad when your frequency declines over time. So we all yes. we always recommend you start with the monthly and and increase the frequency if you if you can maintain it. So yeah, no, well I, I appreciate your your input and your perspective there. So as we wrap up, are you ready for the curveball question? Always. Okay. So the curveball question, and this is a question that I've I've shamelessly stolen from Tim Ferriss, actually. And the question yes. is, if you could go back in time and give advice to your 25-year-old self, what advice might you give to, uh, to that younger self? That is a very good question. And that's why Tim asks it all the time. And thank you for asking it. I, I, the short answer is, Take more risks. Say yes more often. Mm -hmm. What my I, life has taught me over, over time is that the plan that I made for my life was nowhere near as good as what's happened by saying yes to the unexpected turns of the path. Mm -hmm. And if for if people go back to the beginning of the episode, you know, the story of how my firm started is a perfect example of that. Sure. Yeah. It, it, you had a, a potential client that suggested you start your own agency and there was some yeah. risk to it. And yeah, something I, I tell people who are not entrepreneurs, I tell them being an entrepreneur is way less risky than being an employee. And they're like, what do you mean? And I said, well, yeah, like, let's just say you have 20 clients you know, you have a consulting firm of some sort and you have sure. 20 clients yeah. and they each account for 5% of your revenue. Doesn't that sound less risky that any one decision maker could impact 5% of your income as opposed to 100% of your income like an employer? Yeah, so, it, I agree with you 100%, Dave. <laughs> we speak the it, same language there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you know it's funny like when you if you like if you value a company 
like that's potentially considering selling, one of the first things that you look at are what's called concentration risk. You know, meaning too much of your income is tied to one client. And generally, for most companies, like it kind of depends on the industry, but for sure, if 50% of your revenue is tied to one client, that's a huge negative. But in a lot of industries, even if 20% of your revenue is tied to one client. So that's why it's it's even like it further buttresses my assertion that if having 20% of your income tied to one income stream is is less than ideal, then how is it a good idea to have 100% of your income tied to one income source? So Yeah, I, I agree. I agree 100%, Dave. Well, Paul, I cannot believe how the time has flown by. This has really been fun, and I really appreciate you carving time out of your day to tell your your background, tell the story, some of the life lessons you've learned, some of the business lessons, some of the podcast lessons. And I think there's going to be a lot of uh, great insight that our listeners will enjoy. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for having me on today. I, I really appreciate it. What you do with your company and what you do with this podcast is a great contribution to the many people who are considering podcasts and want to just do a better job and get their story out there. So thank you for that. Oh, well, it's, I tell you, it's, it's really been a labor of love. It's, it's kind of a secondary business. It's not the one that pays the bills, but it's, it's probably been the most fun business I've ever had, helping other people to experience the magic of uh, having their own podcast is really uh, very satisfying. So thank you for your kind words. So with that, let's go ahead and wrap up. And uh, again, thank you for your time. And I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you, Dave. Great to chat with you. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at www.podcastingstories.com. This podcast is brought to you by your podcast team. If you have ever considered having your own podcast, head over to www.yourpodcast.team to learn more about how they can help you. That's it for this episode. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next time.